Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner. And just a heads up, this episode has some pretty graphic descriptions in it. So take care if you're listening with little ones around. I've had a lot of requests for an explanation on what is happening with Roe v. Wade and abortion access in the States. And I've covered some of that um, and covered our own situation here in Ireland. One of the things that fascinates me is that uh, some places in the States still have more access to abortion even after the overturning of Roe v. Wade than we do in Ireland. But places like Alabama. Alabama became the first state in decades to make abortion a crime in almost every case. Doctors who perform an abortion can face 99 years in prison. More and more US states are introducing laws that severely restrict abortions. Mississippi, Ohio, Georgia, they've already passed bills banning abortions once a fetal heartbeat has been detected. Interestingly, Mississippi has banned abortions after 15 weeks, like I said, which is causing a lot of protests around the US. But you have to keep in mind that in Ireland, you can only get it up to 12 weeks. So if you're shocked at what is happening over there, make sure that you spread your shock closer to home. The Supreme Court voting to overrule the landmark Roe v. Wade uh, ruling is is a fight that's gone on in the US for decades. And one of the reasons for that is because people disagree on when, after conception the bunch of cells, or later the fetus or the embryo, becomes a person. The argument both in Ireland and abroad is that making abortion illegal does not stop it happening. It just makes it unsafe because people will always get abortions. And that is what today's episode is about. We're going to go back in time, decades ago, when abortions were illegal in the USA. And we're going to meet a woman who found herself caught up in this world who ended up doing abortions herself, but then almost accidentally she created a movement that was about so much more. This woman's name is Carol Downer and she joins me now. Hi, Carol. Thanks so much for joining me. Good morning. Nice to be here. Will you take me back to the 1960s when you had four children and and, and a turbulent marriage and found yourself pregnant again? What happened? Um, If I'm understanding your question, um, well, first of all, I had six children. Oh, six. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yes, um, uh, which the younger two would be glad I mentioned them. Um, <laughs> that um, I was listening to my, um, not my radio, but a radio at my workplace. I had a temp job at that time uh, as a typist clerk, 
And there was a meeting of the National Organization for Women. And I thought that was a very great idea. And I went home. My husband drove me to the meeting. And I arrived to find um, at this uh, kind of banquet room in a local restaurant that um, there were about 100 women there. Uh, but of them, only three uh, was interested in the abortion committee, which was the only one that I, as a housewife, really took much of an interest in at all. The rest were to deal with career women. Was this before you had had your own experience? No, I had had an illegal abortion about five years previously to that. And I, um, you know, knew just exactly uh, what an outrage it was and, and, and not, you know, and how all I had to go through for it and what it meant to um, me and to women in general. Uh, so I was, you know, highly tuned into it. And I think that, that was my question. So at that time when you had the abortion, you had four kids. Was I, was I correct in that? And then I had four children at that time. And how did you find someone, how did you find access to it when, when it was illegal? At that point, um, I just started asking all my friends, all my acquaintances. And uh, at my work, uh, there were uh, a number of uh, black women there that um, worked in the typing pool with me. And one of them uh, gave me a, a phone number to call. And I called the uh, number and found uh, someone that I made an appointment with. And my husband uh, drove me to the appointment. And I mean, not he had offered to stay in the marriage, uh, but he recognized that my what my decision was. Mm -hmm. And um, it was in the business district in the downtown black business business district. And I saw an, a door with had the number on it, but no other marking. And at the top was a, a door that led to a em, completely empty room. And a uh, woman in a nursing uniform came out, greeted me, and uh, led me into the other room in which there, again, it was empty except for an exam table with the stirrups. And she told me to get on uh, take off my uh, underwear and uh, get up on the um, table, which of course I did. And um, then the um, abortionist came in the room uh, from the bind where I couldn't really catch a good look. Not that I looked at him, I realized that that was not a good thing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, because then I maybe, you know, would be able have to identify him. And I, I wanted to protect his identity. Okay. Uh, so um, he got right to work in a very calm and, and, you know, effective way. Unfortunately, since there was no anesthesia and it was the old-fashioned DNC, uh, it was incredibly painful. It was just really uh, worse than any of my births. And um, I just, it was just intense agony. Uh, it didn't go on for too long, I don't think. Um, uh, you know, maybe 10 to 
minutes. I, I just don't know exactly. That was over. That part was over. And then he did, he kept busy. Yeah. <laughs> I was, since I couldn't see what he was doing, I didn't know he was doing what he was doing uh, for another while. And at, at long last, um, he, you know, took out the speculum and he said, well, we're done. And he gave me another slip of paper with a phone number on it. And he said, call me back in a week. And of course, if you have any problem, call me right away. But assuming everything's going to be fine, why call me then? I went home. My my husband drove me home, and um, he left because we were uh, living apart at that time. And my children was my grandmother, and I just went into the soundest sleep I've ever had in my life. And I didn't wake until the next morning. And I looked out, I heard the birds singing. <laughs> and I said, I'm alive. <laughs> I, I, I am. And I I didn't realize how scared. How scared I really was. Yeah. That that I was amazed that I was alive. And um everything went fine for a week, but then I called the doctor and uh, he said, No. I, I packed your uterus. He said, that means I put gauze in it. Just in case you were starting to bleed, I wanted to protect against that. Now it has to come out. So what you need to do is you just need to reach up there and grab that uh, string that you'll feel and pull it out. Um, it has to come out. Then So then I proceeded to do that. I got into the tub and lay back and uh, felt for this string, started to pull it out. And my God, it was just like pulling a knife out. And was this, this was the common, like this is what was happening in, in these sort of like underground abortions? Uh, you know, I, I, I can tell you in retrospect over the years, because being an activist, I've heard many, many abortion stories. And so, yes, in retrospect, I can tell you that I was very lucky. I did get a thorough and careful practitioner. And when was it that you realized that that while you were lucky and you had a, a safe abortion, that people doing these illegal abortions like yours were not always doctors? Some of them didn't have any medical training. How, what part of the of your journey did you realize that? You know, over the years, uh, I've run across some of these guys, and I do say guys, and not to say that there weren't women too, but it was the guys that were so sleazy. <laughs> and uh, they'd say, "Oh, I've done abortion," and then they go on to tell me, and I and I believe them <laughs> because they, uh, you know, uh, they fall into that category, and they just really bragged about it, and. Um, the, the most callous, um, stupid people. I mean, they were just a, a lower level persons, you know, and I just cringed when I heard them, but I was paying close attention because I was taking notes, you know. Yeah. So then you're, you're kind of thinking like, well, if these malevolent idiots can do this, why, why can't I do it and, and provide a safe course of action for people? So what were your next steps? How did you move from taking notes to actually taking action? Uh, well, the NOW meeting. Oh, yeah. uh, 
you know, once I had the abortion, I just went back to my life as usual. Um, however, um, during that period of time, and I think uh, I believe this was similar in, in Ireland prior to the um, legalization of abortion, um, there was a, a tremendous uh, interest uh, nationally. Um, in the United States, it was initially mostly from doctors and ministers and um, um, lawyers, professional people. The media ran a lot of uh, specials on the issue. Um, so, you know, during the, during the time that I uh, joined, well, of course, this was the uprise of, of women in general. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was one of millions of women that, that jumped on board, you know, with this um, uh, effort to bring about social change for women. Taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, humdingermortgages.ie, your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business, right? Not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end. And they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application. But then they don't abandon you. They will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply. They specialise in helping first-time buyers, people looking to trade up and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate. And like for me, I'm going to switch my mortgage. I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage. Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make. So take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for five euro plus that. Uh, or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the five euro that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. 
that's it just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it who you think will benefit from it that helps to get our listeners up which helps us get sponsorship it's all how it works and uh, yeah I'd be really grateful if you do that too bye and so how did you move then from being someone who was watching all of this and being an activist to actually taking action and learning the procedure of 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 of, of doing an abortion well I, as part of my uh, activities, uh, one of the things that I did was to uh, mount a demonstration to support a local uh, illegal abortionist that was uh, had been arrested and was facing trial. And as I was, as they say, I was on the NEL committee, mm-hmm. and um, I organized for us at that time. Uh, a, a large demonstration, which was 500 people, uh, at the Hancock Park, that you know brought me in touch with this illegal abortionist. Uh, one of my co-committee members, Mary Petrinovich, I was uh, connected with him to the extent that she brought students from that were you know needing an abortion from the campus. Uh, her husband was a professor at the University of Riverside. So I, I went over to this clinic, this storefront clinic, which was openly operating at that time, even though he was under, you know, indictment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, basically hung around because that's, in that terms of the times, it was a very kind of, laid-back time, and people were kind of cool with things, and, you know, we uh, didn't want to look like this was, uh, you know, anything unusual. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, as a consequence, um, Mary and other people, because I was not the only person that kind of was gravitating to support this clinic, uh, sometimes, you know, through picketing outside to support him, things like that. Mary pointed out to me because we were observing this procedure and it was quick and it was effective. Uh, the women, you know, did well. Um, and he used this device. He was far from trying to be shy about this. He was um, trying to make it into a cause celeb. What was the device? What, or how did it work? Instead of the DNC, which are these about 12-inch metal um, rods that they put, uh, you know, instruments that they put into the uh, uterus to scrape out the insides, which, you know, have a, a kind of a spoon-like knife edge. Mm-hmm. He had just this flexible cannula. You know, imagine one about half a Guinness big. And then it was attached to a 50cc syringe. He operated this. He, he made suction by pulling out the syringe. He, he disengages and goes over and empties out the contents of that into a, a bowl. And then he, he, he reattaches and, and does this oh, three or four more times until he has um, extracted all of the contents of the uterus. And this is a very effective for early abortion. It's suitable up, you know, through those first three months. 
so you're watching uh, him and he's you're basically an abortion apprentice now and then you see that this is a safe and simple uh, safe and simple procedure in the sense that he's not just telling you that it is but you see the women are doing well and you've seen enough of them is is that at the point where you think like I want to recruit other women to do this well you know he first of all remember that we were defending him he was the male savior right okay. and <laughs> that kind of grated against us and he was typical male chauvinist pig what can i say he was he definitely um enjoyed his position uh of their being grateful to him and so forth and um mary said carol we can do this it's not that hard and then we, you know, yes, we would get arrested. We figured we would. But then we would go to trial and that would break the dam and get abortion um, made legal throughout the country. Now, I should say that it was already legal in California, just as you pointed out uh, in your remarks. Things were different in each state. Mm-hmm. And in California, they had passed a law. Uh, they called it Therapeutic Abortion Act, in which in the first um, trimester, um, if you did this, or actually through the second too, if you did this procedure in an, a, a what they call an accredited hospital, had to meet certain requirements by a doctor, uh, it was legal. But doctors didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. I mean, let's get over this idea that doctors are all just rushing in there to help us on this problem. Uh, Some doctors are, and they are just the most wonderful human beings you can meet. But the majority of doctors don't want to get their hands dirty, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. So abortion was still highly difficult to get in California. Uh, I think maybe 30 a month, excuse me, 30 a week were being performed down at our large central hospital on indigent women, uh, mainly mainly to learn the procedure, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But the regular woman couldn't get, get, get one. So uh, we were in that um, that place where it was legal but not available. and. Um, so we were going to uh, make it available. <laughs> and uh, then uh, right at that time in history, uh, you know, these trials that with big victories and so forth was a way that people were making a lot of social changes. So how did you go from there? How did you recruit the women to, to teach them? And how did you end up setting up the clinic? Well, we it was just a few of us, Mary and I and a handful of other women that just kind of hung around the clinic and then we learned a little bit more, uh, mostly looking at each other and, um, you know, learning how to do uterine size checks or a pelvic, you know. I mean, in other words, getting in, in sterile technique. All of, We weren't actually doing the, the abortions themselves, but we were gathering a lot of the knowledge that you need Mm -hmm. but there were just a few of us and so we put a ad in the uh, 
local women's newspaper that was put out from a feminist bookstore in Venice and told women in very vague terms that we were really going to do something. And 30 women showed up to see what we might have might come up with. And we're, we're excited, our little committee. And it was my duty to explain this equipment that, that Harvey Carmen, who was the name of the illegal abortion, this was the Carmen equipment. And it was up to me to, that part of the program was to, share this with the women. How did they take it? Did you convince them that it was? Well, they were extremely interested, of course. They were were riveted uh, attention. Uh, But as I went on and I described, oh, then you open up yours and you put this in the um, uterus and then you uh, turn it so that it suctions out the material, I could see they were appalled. Yeah. You know, that this just didn't sound like any sensible thing that anyone would ever do. It just sounded very, very dangerous. And I stepped back and I thought, something, I've got to do something. Now, I had myself uh, been very, very changed by actually having at this clinic seen a woman's cervix, having seen, you know, I, I was in the procedure room when they, Speculum was in, and uh, the gooseneck light was on the woman's cervix. And I said, God, that, that's, that's only a couple inches in from my outside and that beautiful pink cervix. I mean, I just, re- and it was so simple uh, in its structure and healthy. And, you know, I, I realized it, it was very transforming for me. So I thought, well, maybe they, maybe that's what they need too. So I asked them to go with me, and I went across the room to. There was a desktop, you know, a desk there that I could climb up on, and I was wearing a, a long floor-length dress, and I pulled up the skirt, and I didn't have underpants, so all I had to do was to put in a speculum, which I had there, and ring down the lamp from the that was over the, the uh, desk and ask them to come over and look. How did they take that? Did they did they all come over and look? They rushed over <laughs> <laughs> and they looked and they were delighted and they just it it completely changed the equation. Uh, we went from, you know, this trepidation and fear to joy. They were just so excited and so happy and asking good questions. And then they in turn, Mary got up and she showed her cervix and then a couple of other women did. And we bring out all these questions. And by the end of the evening, um, you know, we just um, resolved to meet the next week. And um, we were on our way to starting this clinic. That was our our goal by the end of that meeting. Now that changed very rapidly uh, because the situation on the ground changed. Uh, finally, this, uh, this abortion equipment uh, 
uh, this uh, suction devices uh, began to be available and sold in the LA area to doctors. And some of them decided, well, they would try that. In fact, there was one uh, doctor who was located, his hospital was located in the industrial district. And um, it was an industrial clinic, you know, for industrial injuries. Mm-hmm. And the word got out and women were lined up around the block all, you know, seven days a week to get abortions at this clinic. And um, so the pressure was off in, to an extent. I mean, obviously, it was a long way from being enough, but it wasn't like it was the week before. And we realized, well, if we did get arrested, who would be sympathetic? Because they'd say, well, listen, women could get legal abortion. So why were you, you know, opening this illegal clinic? So it didn't matter to us, though, because we had discovered self-help. We had discovered that what a difference it makes in how a woman feels about herself when she has direct access with, and usually is in our situation, we were with each other. We could see other women's surveys. So do you mean that you were, you sort of pivoted from providing abortions to sort of just providing general health education? Exactly. And we realized the power of that. And also, it so happened at our in that first meeting, Lorraine Rothman was one of the people who traveled in uh, an hour to get to this meeting. And Lorraine's husband was all like Mary. Her husband was a professor at the University of California at Rivers at um, um, Fullerton. And she was his lab assistant. She was in, she was a very um, gifted person. And Lorraine saw this device, what we had. And of course, like the rest of us, she was thrilled with it. But she saw a possibility that we didn't see. What was that? Yeah, she saw the possibility of creating a whole new device. And she came with a prototype of it the very next week, and she called this, well, we eventually called it, we didn't name it that night, but we eventually called it the Dellum. And we have used this now over 50 years with great success. It's And it is um, possible for minimally trained women. I mean, obviously there are certain basic skills we need to learn. We can, as a team, extract our menstrual periods, or in the case where we're pregnant, we can have an abortion. So in 1971, then you set up the Women's Health Clinic in Los Angeles. And this sort of, was it a crossbreed of sort of health education that was happening there and abortions? Or what was happening in the, did people know that abortions were happening? Or what was it like? Well, you know, I kind of, I'll be honest, when you say health education, although that, of course, is what it is, 
Uh, nevertheless, the word has become associated to me with some authority up in the there telling me about my body. Right, okay. And this isn't anything like that. It was like self-exploration and empowerment and much more than just stuffy old education. Exactly. It was self, uh, self-education on steroids, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> and, you know, because for one thing, we found that the whole profession of gynecology uh, is, you know, a stuff we can do ourselves. I mean, obviously, we can't do surgeries, and we're not going to, and we're not going to <clears throat> prescribe drugs to ourselves. Um, but in all the realms of self-maintenance and home remedies and um, prevention uh, and sexuality, you know, or masturbation, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what the whole range of um, possessing this wonderful, uh, you know, equipment that we have and, um, and stop thinking of it as uh, our vulnerability, which at this moment it is, of course. Uh, it is the way in which uh, we're kept, you know, subjected uh, by a male-dominated society. But if we take command and we understand, then, you know, it's a revolution, but it's a revolution of a whole different type. It's, 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 it just simply um, shifts the balance of power completely. <laughs> completely. <laughs> and so this was happening in the clinic. This was happening in 1971. And um, I know that the, 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 the police raided the clinic in 1972. Um, but can you tell us about what was happening when they raided or how, how all that came about? Exactly. They did not let this go on uh, indefinitely. <laughs> um, uh, although the, the, we, we held weekly uh, self-help clinics where women came and uh, we, you know, did self-examination, um, little did we know that there was a, one of the women was a, a plant. Oh, wow. Um, a spy. Uh, of course, they didn't have any women that worked in the uh, their department except some lowly secretaries. So they had to have her their secretary come. And she, of course, she didn't have any other, you know, anything special against us. And anyway, she um, reported on us and that was the basis of arrest and raiding the clinics, uh, of which at this point were self-help clinics. I want to be clear about that. Yes. And um, I and Corinne, uh, Colleen Wilson um, were... Uh, arrested, taken to jail, got out on the bail. And um, Colleen um, did a plea bargaining because she was soon to take her test to be certified as a teacher. And I was uh, the one that was observed putting yogurt into a woman's uh, vagina in a self-help presentation that we did. And um, so I stood trial. It was a couple weeks trial. And it has, uh, attracted national attention. 
and um, I won. <laughs> the uh, jury um, found me not guilty. What were you being accused of? Not guilty of what? What What was the accusation that you were not guilty of? What were, What were they charging you with? Well, they had originally thought that they were going to find us doing abortions. Right. But we weren't. Um, and, and they couldn't go that route. So they charged me with practicing medicine without a license, which was much less. It was six months in jail and or a $1,000 fine. Uh, but that's still pretty heavy, six months in jail. Yeah. Uh, so um, we called the other women in the area to support us. We went around the country. We put out calls to everybody. Um, we got support far and wide. Margaret Mead, for example, wrote us a letter of support. Uh, she said that the menstrual extraction kit was the most important invention for women of the century. And, you know, so we, we just went in and viewed it as an opportunity, actually, uh, to get our word out. And that's, in, that's what he did, in fact. It got it out so effectively that that enabled us to get around the country, um, you know, spreading this to uh, now chapters and women's groups at the colleges and, you know, political left groups, you know, an assortment of people in every community. And now, like nearly 50 years later <laughs> into podcasts, um, when I've heard you speaking before, before Roe v. Wade was overturned, it seemed like, wow, this, you know, like you could see the steps of progress at every point that you, you know, at every at, at every junction that you met. And now it just seems like, wow, is this just a cycle? Like, do we need to go back? Does there need to be another clinic? Like, do we need... I don't know that education is such a... I mean, I think actually still, no, you're right, you know, education is still a, a barrier for women because I think a lot of women don't have education about their bodies or how they work. It's not something that's taught overtly. Um, but just this idea that these illegal underground abortions from, you know, people who are not qualified that might be quite dangerous are going to proliferate again just feels really, really backwards. It, well, of course, we're going backwards. <laughs> but um, the state is going forward in their plan. And we, we have to realize that we are pawns in this larger plan. And that, I think, is one thing that really, really distinguishes what the work that we're doing from the other very, very valuable things that are being done. I'm not making mm -hmm. invidious comparisons. I'm just pointing out that I have heard so many people say, how could they take away our rights? I think they need to ask themselves, did we have, did we have rights in the first place? That could be taken away like this? Doesn't this give a little clue for people to think a minute and realize that, hey, what interests are being served here besides these crazy, you know, uh, reactionaries that are outside picketing in front of our clinics? These, these, are, these are people who have hold no sway in society. They have no respect to, of the general community. Um, there are some of them, you know, just 
sincere people that have become very uh, zealots, uh, but they don't, they're not what's causing this. It is a much bigger picture. And we have to acknowledge this and not just as we did 50 years, just rest on our laurels. You know, our clinic, I mean, we never ceased teaching women. We never ceased giving out speculums. We still do self-help. I was in Ireland um, a few years ago for my granddaughter's wedding. And um, in Dublin, uh, Corinne Loperfito and I did self-exam. Women there loved it, just like any place else in the world. Um, and um, we, we have to start reading the newspapers and thinking about this, how we fit into their master plan. There being like patriarchy or there being? Patriarchy, capitalism, uh, you know, uh, a lot of names you want to give it. Yeah. And it's not that hard, I mean, I, to change that equation. I mean, at least on the individual level. I mean, it's very, very, very difficult on the societal level because they hold the means to keep us uh, our nose to the grindstone and, uh, you know, completely, uh, like, especially in this pandemic, I mean, who has time with, if they have children, to even um, think about such things as going to a self-help group? I mean, you know, never mind uh, the inability to gather in, in intimate groups, but also uh, just the, the sheer time. Women have been hit so hard by this pandemic so of course we're we're they're hitting us at a very low time um, for us yeah it's certainly uh it's I, I think you're right when you say that you know people are shocked it feels like oh my god they took away our rights but you know maybe um maybe we we let the ball drop a little bit carol i could talk to you all day thank you so much for joining me and um and for all the work that you do and uh you know, I, I wish you all the best and uh, continue fighting the, the that that exhausting old fight. Thank you, Stephanie. I uh, loved your questions, and I look forward to hearing more uh, what you're doing on this issue in the future. Great, thank you so much. That is another episode of Basically, and that was Carol Downer. We are produced by Julie Hassett. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara, and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.